which is why you can hear stories, so many stories of people who will say, yeah, I'm exercising like crazy. And yeah, I'm going low calorie and nothing's happening. <laughs> I'm not losing weight. And according to science, that's impossible. But actually, no, according to old science, outdated science, it's impossible. But if you're keeping up with the times and observing, you realize that it's completely possible and it makes sense because there's other conditions where not just a simple input, output, calorie burning machine, we're much more complex, we're much more interesting than that. Welcome to the Calorie Conundrum Podcast with Coach Drake. Join us as we expand the weight loss conversation to beyond just calories and dare to ask the question, why does eating less and exercising more sometimes not produce the desired results? Here's Coach Drake to discuss this calorie conundrum. Hello and welcome to the Calorie Conundrum Podcast. This is Coach Drake and I am super excited because our guest for today's episode is Mark David. Mark is a nutrition expert, consultant, speaker, and host of the Psychology of Eating podcast. He is also the author of the best-selling books, Nourishing Wisdom, A Mind-Body Approach to Nutrition and Well-Being, and The Slowdown Diet, Eating for Pleasure, Energy, and Weight Loss. Mark was able to call upon his years of experience and knowledge to create the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, the world's only health coaching program devoted to teaching the principles of dynamic eating psychology and mind-body nutrition. The Institute has students from around the world and champions an uplifting, inclusive approach to food and body that honors each individual's unique physiology and psychology. Let's hear what Mark has to say about your metabolic powers. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. So glad to be here. So glad to meet you. Yeah, I'm so grateful uh, for you to be on this podcast because uh, your message, I believe, is in line with the message I'm trying to promote through this podcast more than almost any other person that I've, I'm aware of. And um, uh, you have a lot of experience uh, with nutrition and health and weight loss. Uh, could you tell the audience kind of a little bit about your your past, your history, and more specifically how you are different than the average nutritionist that people might go to? Ooh, what a nice, big, juicy question. So, you know, like so many of us, I got started in the health and nutrition field just out of my own need and out of my own passion. You know, I grew up sickly and um, almost died a handful of times in infancy with asthma, allergies, and some unknown autoimmune condition at the time. And you know, I'd heard a rumor that fruits and vegetables were good for you at a young age. I asked my mother to change my diet and all of a sudden my health started to change, coincidence or not. Um, and I started eating more fruits and vegetables. And just as a young person, I made an early connection between food and my health, which was just magical. So I just became a nutrition fanatic. And you know, I was in medical school for a year way back in the day. I thought I'd be a nutritional oriented medical doctor. And by the time I got to medical school, I, I couldn't do anything anymore. Um, I couldn't sit in a classroom and learn things that I didn't want to learn. And I decided to leave school and just embark on a study of my own because I wasn't learning nutrition there. 
So I apprentice with the best people I can find. And, you know, I started practicing on Wall Street in New York City in my early 20s. And so I was working with some of the most highly motivated, educated, wealthy people you could meet. And, you know, a lot of them, significant amount of them wanted to lose weight. So I tell them what to eat. I give them a diet, eat this, don't eat that and come back to me in another couple of weeks and we'll talk. And invariably about 90% of my clients would come back and they say, I know what you told me to do. I know what you told me to eat. I just couldn't do it. And all of a sudden my, I, I had an awakening. And I realized that until I understood the mind and the heart and the soul of the eater, I really couldn't help a lot of people, especially around weight loss. And so I eventually, you know, I, I studied psychology and eventually helped develop the field of eating psychology. So I created the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, where we combined eating psychology and nutrition to help people with really the two kind of pillars of who we are, you know, we're a physical, biological being. And at the same time, we're also an emotional being. And there's this place where the two intersect. So my fascination, my passion, as it relates to weight loss, is around how is mind influencing the body when it comes to how I absorb a nutrient how I digest, how I assimilate, how I calorie burn. Because as it turns out, mind, thoughts, feelings, belief are impacting our capacity to calorie burn. And, and that's profound because it changes the whole conversation. So I let go of the exclusive model a long time ago called that weight loss is a function of calories in, calories out. That's the royal road. You know, does that work for some people? Sure. But if it worked for everybody, then we wouldn't be in this conversation, you and I, because the weight loss industry is, you know, upwards of a $500 billion a year worldwide industry. So it's just getting bigger, not smaller. So there's something we're not doing right. And so I'm interested in the, in the part of the conversation of how is who I am and what I'm thinking, feeling, believing my level of stress, my level of relaxation, uh, how much pleasure I'm getting from a meal, the awareness I'm putting on what I eat. How is that actually impacting my appetite regulation and my literal calorie burning capacity? So that's where I get excited. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's where I you know get excited as well, because I know that people like yourself that are coming at this at a, a different angle, a different viewpoint are helping people that are genuinely trying to lose weight. They're generally trying to become better, um, improve their health, uh, and they, they're, they're trying their best, but they can't do it. And the, the royal road, as you described it, calories in, calories out, is not working for them. And um, it's this message that you're, you're talking about right here, that it's expanding you know, the, the ability to help more people um, with some of these answers that they haven't been able to find in other places. And so as a personal trainer, um, uh, I realized it myself and I just saw that, that calculation, that, that, that formula that we were given, it wasn't working. And, um, so that was my initial, uh, jumping off point into researching more, trying to find more answers. And what was really interesting for me and what really 
sent me down this path was the fact that um, there was people that were doing it like they were starving themselves and they're, they're killing themselves in the workouts, but they still weren't losing weight. And I knew, and I, you know, there's the argument that people lie, they don't count accurately and yada, yada. But I knew there were some of these people were being truthful with me. Yeah. And, and I, w- I was just, you know, so I went on research uh, to figure out why and, and the things that you're talking about are exactly uh, uh, what I found. And that's, that's why I reached out to you to be on the podcast. Um, but, as far as uh, you said something before about you went through, you were going towards medical school and you weren't learning. You said, I think you said you weren't learning about nutrition. Uh, can you talk a little bit of what, uh, more about that, about how um, it wasn't feeding into what you needed to be fulfilled as a nutritionist and, and, and what was missing from that? You know, this was back in 1980 and there wasn't, you know, I, Back in 1980, I had pretty much read every nutrition. <laughs> you know, nowadays you could you can spend a lifetime just Googling around and read nutrition information. And there's like thousands of books on nutrition. But but you know, back in the 70s and 80s, there really wasn't a lot, even in the textbook realm. I, I had gotten every nutrition textbook that was written after 1940. And, you know, when you're in medical school, I think we had two classes in nutrition and it still hasn't gotten much better at a lot of medical schools. It's, it's just that education isn't designed necessarily to create wellness. It's designed to treat disease. So it's a whole different focus. So what I've noticed is that over the years, Uh, the vast majority of innovation in the nutrition field doesn't come from within the medical community. The vast majority of nutrition innovation doesn't happen in the Harvard nutrition program. It happens for the people who came up with macrobiotics for the people for Dr. Atkins, who first started talking about the Atkins diet. It happened with the hippies who started eating vegetarian And all of a sudden people start experimenting and we create, you know, new foods that enter the supermarket. There was a time you couldn't get tofu or you couldn't get, you know, gluten-free foods. So the innovation tends to come from the cutting edge. And that's where I want it to hang. That's where the action is. The action is at the growing tip of evolution. You know, that's where innovation happens in any field, any technological field. There's what everybody's doing. And then there's the innovators who are oftentimes hanging out by themselves, uh, dreaming up a new possibility. So that's why I'm excited about this day and age, because now we can all start talking to each other. Mm. And now you can have a platform, you could reach people like we're doing right now, and you don't have to have a best-selling book in order to promote a good idea and create, you know, a worthy conversation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, also, it, it, not only is it becoming easier to share information, but it's it's becoming easier to um, do self-test on yourself, like um, whether it's blood work or lab work or... Um, all the technology we have today to track heart rate, heart rate variability, uh, all these metrics, we have uh, so much more available to us that we can start actually 
being our own science experiments in a way. Yeah, and that's fun. And that's interesting. You know, I, I, I think what I'm noticing is th- there tends to be two types of people in this realm. There's the type of person who I will say is a very willing and interested nutritional explorer, like the kinds of people you meet who, oh, yeah, I read about this new diet. I really want to try it. Or I heard about this new supplement and I want to take it. Um, And what we do is, as you say, we experiment on ourselves like any good scientist does. You do an experiment and then you gather data and you listen for feedback and you see, you know, did this experiment work for me? And if it doesn't, then that's okay because I came in with an open mind. And if it does work, then, wow, I've discovered something. And then there's the other group of people who, you know, will come to a practitioner or a coach and just say, tell me what to eat. Mm-hmm. I don't want to figure it out. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And, you know, I respect that approach. And oftentimes it's a limited approach because depending on who you talk to, tell me what to eat, you might get an eating prescription that really isn't very interesting or that doesn't work for that person's body. So ultimately at the end of the day, you know, you can be with the best nutritionist, but, but I think we are our own best nutritionist who knows your body better than you. Exactly. And that, that leads me into um, your book, uh, The Slowdown Diet. Uh, it's, a, it's a different kind of diet book. Uh, it's an eight-week program. And, and you talk about these metabolic powers in that book. And one of the powers that I felt um, was really important, um, they're all important, but the one that you're hitting on right here is that the metabolic power of story. And you mentioned it in, in, the, in the book, how you described how like, um, sometimes in science, our anecdotes, our anecdotal stories aren't scientific. Like they get thrown out because it's the end of one or it's a small group of people. Um, can you talk about that and how like um, you, you said how important this story is, but yet science is kind of throwing this this whole story out and just looking at the numbers. Yes. You know, in in the scientific world, the gold standard of a study is that it's large, it's randomized, it's placebo controlled, and it's double blind. And the reality is such conditions don't exist in nature. And the way you even get to the point where you're doing that kind of study is there's an initial, there's always an initial observation. So why would you test a new drug? Because at some point in the process, somebody came up with that molecule. And if a drug company is testing a new drug, they literally start out with a molecule. And oftentimes that molecule is taken from nature. And they, most people don't know this. They're going to look at herbs and they're going to look at what the traditional use of that herb is. And they're going to do, a, then they're going to gather stories and they're going to say, okay, we're going to play with this molecule. And they'll create variations on that molecule. And then they might start to test some of those. Test some of those, meaning give them to people. I'm going to to give give this substance to you, give this drug analog to you and see if it lowers your blood pressure, for example. And if it does, then, oh, wow, all of a sudden, now we're going to put it into a larger study. But every 
every scientific study originally started out with some person's idea <laughs> in their mind. We should study this. Why? Because I made an observation that I take this, I'm in pain, and all of a sudden I have less pain. So there, it always starts out with story. And we want to kind of take out all of the story. So uh, the whole point is you and I are you and I are a story. You know, your whole life is a story. I will often notice so many of my clients over the years, when I go into their story, their history, um, so many people might have had a challenging relationship with food, especially when it comes to weight, people who have been trying to lose weight their whole life. And maybe they got bullied when they were young because they were chubby. Maybe they got shamed by their parent. Maybe they were told at a young age, you have to lose weight. And all of a sudden you tell that to a young person and it's very distressing. And you already don't have a good sense of self. And now your sense of self has been kind of destroyed. And you take that into your later years. And one thing that can happen is we develop the belief as part of our story that fat on my body is the enemy. And how did that fat get there? Well, apparently it's food. So actually, even though the fat's the enemy, because that's what I'm trying to get rid of, food is the real enemy. Now, if food is the enemy, what happens every time you're hungry? What happens every time you have an appetite? What happens every time you eat? You're in a stress response. You're in a physiologic stress response, sympathetic nervous system dominance, fight or flight stress response, which means in part, you're producing more stress hormones. You're partic particularly producing more cortisol, the main stress hormone. And as it turns out, there's been so many studies that show that for so many human beings, and especially animals as well, when you have high cortisol levels, you can have weight gain or you could have inability to lose weight. So weight gain or weight loss resistance. You could take a group of laboratory animals, take a group of rats, lab rats, one group of rats, you give them their usual rat food and they have a nice rat cage and nice rat wheels to exercise around and they have a nice rat lifestyle. You take a second group of rats and they get the exact same amount of food. They have the exact same everything in their environment except one difference. Scientists shock the cage intermittently. Now, if you're a rat and your cage is getting shocked intermittently, that creates a lot of stress. So those laboratory rats, their cortisol increases. And even though they're eating the same amount of food, their weight shoots up. And it's so that weight gain is a hormonal weight gain that's driven by stress. So if I'm a human being and I'm stressed, I'm stressed because I think food is the enemy or I'm stressed because life can be challenging sometimes. I'm producing more cortisol, more insulin. Those two hormones tend to track each other and they can signal the body to store weight, store fat and not build muscle, which is your calorie burning tissue, which is why you can hear stories, so many stories of people who will say, yeah, I'm exercising like crazy. And yeah, I'm going low calorie and nothing's happening. <laughs> I'm not losing weight. And according to science, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. But actually, no, according to old science, outdated science, it's impossible. But if you're keeping up with the times and observing, you realize that it's completely possible and it makes sense 
because there's other conditions. We're not just a simple input, output, calorie burning machine. We're much more complex. We're much more interesting than that. Exactly. And, that, and that's the whole premise of uh, the podcast, the calorie conundrum, right? So um, we have this equation and then it's supposed to add up to a certain amount and it doesn't for so many people. Uh, and then that's the conundrum. Like, why is that happening? And you're explaining at least one part of that. Uh, one question I asked another guest before, um, it was about like experts in, in our, in our fields, the fitness, the health, the, the doctors, um, we have a lot of this, um, this, this things you write about in your book, a lot of them are kind of, um, non-scientific, they would say, um, even though there's more and more science coming together that proves it, it, it I just feel a, a real resistance from even really educated like PhDs in nutrition and and doctors and things around these ideas. It's like sometimes they'll even admit admit to some of these ideas that you have in your book. They'll admit admit to it, but then they say, "Oh well." At the end of the day, it all comes down to calories in, calories out, right. and like that's the that's like their final answer on, on on any kind of argument around this whole nutrition thing. Why why do you think? Um, these experts are so resistant to accepting some of these these other ideas that are in fact valid and even scientifically proven, but it just doesn't fit into their calories in, calories out mantra. You know, it's 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 that's a that's a million dollar question. It's such a great exploration. I think part of it is human nature. Quite frankly, uh, there was a. Um, uh, a, a researcher many moons ago, his name was Thomas Kuhn, and he just did a like an overall overarching study of scientific innovation. And he's often quoted by famous scientists. And, and what he discovered was that when there is a new and valid scientific discovery that really changes the paradigm of a particular scientific field, he said it takes about 50 years, 50 years for that new scientific belief to take hold, for it to become popular wisdom and popular knowledge. It was, I'm, I'm forgetting, it was probably over 100 years from the time that the observation was first made that sailors at sea who were getting scurvy Back in the 16 and 1700s, sailors would get scurvy, and there was one captain who observed, when I give my sailors limes, they don't get scurvy. Well, he was solving the scurvy problem, but it took 100 years for somebody to figure out, oh my goodness, there's vitamin C in the limes, and a vitamin C deficiency is what creates scurvy. And when you give somebody the tiniest amount of vitamin C, it prevents it, it cures it. So it took a long time for that to become a common practice for sailors at sea. Humans, we, we get into our beliefs <laughs> and we like them and we tend to worship them if they feel right and they feel good. And I think it takes a very flexible mind. It takes an open mind to be willing to say, oh, you know something, Sean, today, yesterday I believed this. But you know something, I got new input, new information, new data, and now I'm changing that. I'm going to leave that behind. Um, we don't always like to do that. So 
I think that's a lot of what goes on, just simple human nature. Yeah. We want to pitch our tent in our beliefs and 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 die on that, you know, die on that little battleground. Yeah, exactly. Like we just we just want to be right in what we initially decide. And in the calories in, calories out thing is such an easy thing to convince people that it makes sense because when you just think about it on the surface level, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's calories in, calories out is this equation. Um, but then once you like dive a little deeper, then you realize there's more to it than just that. And, and then that's when it complicates things. And, and people, I feel like people don't uh, want to investigate these things because it's just more effort and more work that they have to, they would have to do. And it would kind of, it's work that's going to demolish their old thought patterns. And so they don't even want to go down that path kind of in a way. <laughs> yes. Um, we, we tend to shun the beauty of complexity. You know, we want simple answers. Oh, you have this problem. Here's this one drug, one problem, one drug. Oh, you're, you want to lose weight. You have one problem, too many calories, not enough exercise. Exactly. So that sounds so simple and so easy and you can sit there and 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 rest in your laurels but it's more complex if you if you care to do a little bit of research you'll find out that there's so much going on so much research going on about let's say the gut microbiome and how an altered gut an unhealthy gut microbiome will impact weight <laughs> you can do research on liver toxicity and start to see that a toxic liver, a fatty liver, will impact how we burn calories. You can do just a little bit of research and understand that stress chemistry that we talked about can profoundly influence how we burn calories. Thyroid hormone, <laughs> if you're high or low in thyroid hormone, that can lead just to, to, to completely skewed calorie burning capacity, irregardless of what you eat. I mean, think of it this way. You buy a car and you're looking at cars. And, you know, one of the things I look at when I'm looking at a car is how many miles to the gallon is this car getting? How efficiently does it burn fuel? When you hear fuel, think food. So some, some cars, I don't know, a big uh, Hummer, you know, gets like, I don't know, five miles to the gallon or a Toyota Corolla might get 70 miles to the gallon. So it's a different machine that burns that fuel more efficiently. Well, guess what? Every body burns calories differently. Like, like what is a calorie? So the most common way of measuring a calorie, essentially, like this piece of bread, how do we know how many calories it has? Well, you know how many calories it had because you probably put it in what they call a bomb calorimeter. You put it in a gizmo, a machine that essentially torches it, burns it to a crisp and measures the amount of heat that's released. And then we say this piece of bread has 80 calories or whatever it is. Well, that's under an ideal condition with a machine. But as it turns out, that same piece of bread in your body or anybody's body is going to have a different value because we're not all the same biological machine. <laughs> we vary greatly, we vary greatly with age. On top of that, you could just do a little research and you'll notice that we actually burn calories different at different times of the day. 
You know, you, two, three o'clock in the morning, you're at your some of your lowest calorie burning efficiency. You know, people used to wonder, how, how did sumo wrestlers gain all that weight back in the day? They didn't have ice cream. They didn't have cake and cookies. And yet you had the Japanese who are eating rice and fish and seaweed, and they're able to gain a ton of weight. Well, what sumo wrestlers traditionally did was they would, yeah, they'd eat a lot of food, but they'd wake themselves up late at night, early in the morning, two, three, four in the morning, and they'd eat as much as they could, taking advantage of the observation that we calorie burn least efficiently in the late evening hours. We calorie burn most efficiently when the sun is highest in the sky, which if you think about it, makes evolutionary sense. When the sun is highest in the sky, that's when you're hunting, you're gathering, you're looking for a mate. And that's when a, a lot of mammals tend to be active. Yeah, there's there's so many, you know, things that affect how we utilize the, the energy that's in the food that we consume. You mentioned the time of day that we eat can affect uh, how our metabolism is working, but also there's so many other things like how you prepare the food, the quality of the food, um, you know, what you're consuming it with, what you're combining it with. Uh, there's so many variables to it that you can't really look at a single individual number and say that's the, the numbers is going to be that number uh, because there's so many things that could alter that number. And this is a lot of people don't know that, but it's it's true. <laughs> and um, and so that's that's why it's important to focus on more than just the amount. There's other variables other than the amount. And in your book, you talk about these metabolic powers. And so you're you're talking about these ideas that would help our metabolism increase our metabolism, help us burn calories or lose weight or whatever you want to call it, make us more efficient, better, uh, healthier, running better uh, metabolisms. And so those met metabolic powers were relaxation, quality, awareness, rhythm, pleasure, thought, story, and the sacred. Um, so out of, out of those eight powers, what, what would you say your favorite one is? Oh, goodness. You know, we, we've talked about my, my favorite already, which is, you know, essentially the metabolic power of relaxation. So relaxation sits on the other side of the coin from stress. You know, most people, if you, if you pulled most people and you said, hey, when you're stressed and anxious, do you think your calorie burning capacity is higher or lower? Most people will say it's higher because you feel like you've got a lot of energy running through your system when you're stressed and anxious. And as it turns out for a significant majority of people, and I'm gonna just say observationally, observationally, I have found that about 85% of humans who are weight loss resistant, and they are constantly under stress, about 85% of people, it's, it's, there seems to be a connection between their stress and their weight. There's about 10 or 15% of people who, when they're stressed, their appetite goes down, their metabolism may shoot up. And yeah, they're going to be the weight losers when they're in a stress state. But, you know, when we're in a relaxation state, I, I mean, in the relaxation state and parasympathetic nervous system dominance, 
you have regular rhythmic breathing. Oxygen is our key metabolizer. When you're in stress, a stress state, your, your breathing pattern is shallow, it's arrhythmic, it's infrequent. Um, so at the end of the day, one of uh, arguably the greatest benefit of exercise is literally the body's taking in more oxygen and it's learning how to use that oxygen more efficiently. So that's ultimately like oxygen is, is helping power the fat burning process. Um, when we're relaxed, we're in a regular rhythmic breathing pattern your cortisol levels come down. And as we mentioned, cortisol is the kind of hormone that when you inject it in a human being, or if we're produ hyper producing too much of it, it's going to skew the body towards weight gain or weight loss resistance. So opposite to that relaxation, you and I do our most powerful digestion and assimilation in a relaxation response. You and I do our most natural appetite regulation in a relaxation response. So when we're relaxed, appetite can function most efficiently. And, and it's, that's an evolutionary adaptation because if, you know, in, in, in ancient times when we're evolving on this planet um, and you're running around and you're being chased by a predator, we developed the survival response, the stress response. So you're being chased by a predator, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, and essentially your digestion shuts down. Blood flow moves away from your midsection to arms and legs and head for fighting and fleeing and quick thinking. And in those moments, digestion shuts down because you don't need to be digesting your pizza or your Fruit Loops or your Krispy Kreme donuts when you're running from a lion. You want all your metabolic energy going into survival. So part of the weight loss, part of the weight management system in the body is you need to be digesting and assimilating your food and pulling out the nutrition from it. But if I'm in constant low level or mid-level stress, to some degree, I'm in nutrient excretion, meaning I'm not digesting and assimilating properly, which means I'm excreting nutrition. And, you know, we don't have the science down exactly here because nobody wants to study it because there's no money in that. <laughs> um, so, you know, the bottom line is when you're a relaxed human being, your appetite is easily regulated. You're not fighting yourself. Most people who are fighting food you're in a stress response, your appetite is literally deregulated. You don't know if you're hungry or not. And for many people, when they're stressed, they're anxious, they're angry, they're upset, we reach for food. Because then I eat food and food is pleasure. And food will actually help take me out of the stress response at some point, at least temporarily, because food feels good. And when you feel good, you relax. Pleasure creates a relaxation response. So that's one of my favorites. But honestly, they're all favorites. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's definitely one, uh, an important one. So if, if you had somebody come to you and they, you know, their life's a mess, work's killing them. They got these kids running around doing stuff. Their husband doesn't take out the trash. Uh, they got all kinds of stress. And then, then you know, the world in general, uh, what are some recommendations, some tips or what would you tell that person to do to help them relax so they can get their metabolism under control? You know, that's, that's where when we're coaching people around health and nutrition and lifestyle, 
that's when we really need to learn how to be coaches around life and around who we are and why we're here and how to be a human being that can manage, you know, a crazy world because life isn't easy. And I'm always looking for with a client, like what's the easiest place to work? Because what happens is we don't learn necessarily at a young age how to regulate our emotional experience. So when I am stressed, when I am anxious, what do I do? A lot of times what happens for young people, you learn from a young age, the way you regulate stress and anxiety is you eat. Chances are when you were crying and screaming as a little kid, your parents might've given you sugar. They might've given you food. They might've given you a snack, eat this and shut up. Um, and you know, they're doing the best that they can do, but we learn from a young age, feel bad, eat food, feel better. You learn from a young age, feel bad, drink alcohol, feel better. You learn from a young age, feel bad. Uh, I don't know, take drugs, feel better or feel bad. Uh, watch TV, feel better, mm. feel bad, go out and do stupid things and make trouble, feel better. So we learn coping mechanisms that actually don't work for us and that don't bring out the best in us. So I'm always looking to help a person, you know, find for them, what are the ways you can manage your emotional experience in ways other than turning to food or alcohol or drugs or, or any kind of distractions that don't serve you. So for some people, it's listening to music, it's playing music, it's being out in nature, it's walking your dog, it's stretching, it's breathing, it's watching silly videos, um, it's being in a meaningful conversation, it's doing some kind of self-care, you know, whatever it is that, that helps evolve us as a person. Otherwise, we're just trying to manage ourselves. And I think we have to grow ourselves. Yeah. So it's kind of an individual answer and you kind of have to work with the person to kind of figure out what that was as far as um, what they're interested in, what they'd be willing to do and things like that. That's my experience. Yes. It's, it's, you know, I wish nutrition and weight loss was a cookie cutter approach because then it would be easy, but it really isn't. And, and that's the beauty of it because we're all unique. You know, you have your journey. I have mine. Every person that you work with, they have their own unique journey and they're going to have their own unique answers. Like, yes, there, there are certain eating principles and exercise principles that tend to work for a majority of us. Um, but once again, everybody's different. So how do we, how do I find the sweet spot for me? And, and, you know, back to what we were saying earlier, some of that is experimentation. And, and also I think it's just a willingness to learn and to look at like, what's actually most important in my life. And I, I'm, I'm always, I'm always saying to people that I work with or that I teach to, um, that, that our food and body challenges, no matter what they are, if you're an overeater, a binge eater, an emotional eater, if you're working with weight, if you're dealing with body image, every challenge such as these, they're great teachers. 
at the very least. Yeah, you want to get rid of your digestive issues. Yeah, you want to get rid of your excess weight. But when we attack them like they're the enemy, it generally doesn't get us where we want to go, I find. If you attack your weight, if you hate your weight, if you hate your digestive issue, you when I'm hating on something, I'm not exploring it. I'm not questioning it. I really can't learn about it. I'm in an emotional reaction that doesn't have me making good decisions. I'm not using the executive function, the prefrontal cortex of my brain to, to do good synthesis and complex thinking and higher thinking. So our relationship with food and body and our challenges with food and body, they're great teachers. So I'm, I'm always encouraging people to ask the question, how is it a great teacher for you personally? Like what, how is it asking you to grow as a person? And sometimes there's a lot of answers for people, for any one person. And sometimes those answers change. You know, sometimes it's calling us to be more patient. Sometimes it's calling us to be more loving. I, I don't know what you've seen, but a lot of times what, what I've seen with people wanting to lose weight is that they're starting from a place of, I hate my body. I hate my weight. I hate this body fat. So they go hard at exercise mm -hmm. and they go hard at trying to starve themselves. Now, the idea of losing weight, the whole purpose of losing weight is what? So I can be happier, right? <laughs> if I lose weight is what we think is I'm going to be happier. I'm going to feel better about myself. I'm going to feel lighter. I'm going to have more energy. But the idea is those things make you happy. It's the only reason why people want to lose weight. It's going to make me happy. Um, yeah, some people are going to say healthier, but being healthier is going to make you happy. So happiness is really the ultimate goal for majority of people wanting to lose weight. So if you're punishing yourself in your weight loss journey, I hate my body, I hate my body fat, and exercise for them, people, so many people, they're not exercising because they love exercise. I love to move. This feels good. I love running. I love playing basketball. I love this exercise machine. I love this workout. No, people are actually hating their body <laughs> as they're doing. The exercise is almost a punishment for having body fat. The diet is a punishment for having body fat. So how could a road of punishment and self-hate possibly end up in a destination of self-love and happiness? I, I just logically, that doesn't work. So at the very least, if you're going to go on a weight loss journey, there has to be some goodness in it. There has to be kindness in it. There has to, we have to learn how to love ourselves into our destination rather than hate yourself into, the, into that destination. Just like anything you want to learn in life and anything you want to change in life, like make it a good journey as best you can. Yeah, there's definitely got to be some grace given to yourself. Because a lot of a lot of people are in this problem, not because of anything they consciously did to themselves. Uh, it's 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 by happenstance. Just living in today's world with all these toxic things in the environment, including the food, um, and it's so easy to. I mean, you don't even have to leave your house nowadays. You can just order food right to your house, whatever you want, and it's it's so easy to uh, you know create the all these habits that you know, ultimately end up in people overweight that a lot of people, it's not even their fault really, but yet they're beating themselves up because of it, you know? And yeah. like you said, you can't, 
you can't be doing that and expect uh, a positive outcome. <laughs> you, know, you know, I I read a study, and this was it was this was forty years ago, uh, and in this study, I was I was doing some research in um, University of Massachusetts Library before the days of the internet. I'm just going through you know, these huge books, compilations of studies. I found a study where. Um, you know, the, the researchers were asking the question, why is it that so many people who go on a weight loss diet don't lose weight? And they they found, and, and which is actually consistent today, that only a few percent of people who go on a weight loss diet and lose it will maintain it. So they look to study the one to 2% of people who lost weight and maintain that weight loss. What's different about them? And what they concluded after interviewing all these people, the one percenters, what they concluded was that the one percenters all had some kind of life change that mm. was significant. And it varied. Some people got married. Some people got divorced. Those are powerful life changes. Some people, there was a death in the family. Some people described a spiritual awakening. Some people described, you know, a personal change in how they viewed the world. Um, but the whole point is there was a powerful shift in their life that was concomitant with weight loss and keeping it off all happened at the same time. And I, I just find that very fascinating because there, there's so many people who, you know, for so many different reasons, they're, they've been dieting, you know, and I, I see this constantly, Sean, people, I'll, I'll, I'll work with somebody in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and people are dieting for 85% of their life. They've been dieting since they've been 15 years old. So if I work with a 60-year-old person, they've been dieting for 45 years. What you're telling me then is you've been doing something for 45 years that does not work. So I think to myself, and I'll say to my client, we need to do something radically different because what you do doesn't work. And, you know, for some people, they do need a life change. They do need a, a shift in their relationship with food, um, you know, seeing it differently, because I, I think so many people, Sean, what happens is the diet mentality trains us how to not eat. I mean, think about that. The dieting mentality is training you how to control your appetite, how to have more willpower and how to eat low calorie or how to eat low fat or low protein or whatever the diet is. But it's essentially kind of training you how to not eat. And really the education I would like to give people from a young age is here's how to eat. <laughs> here's how you eat. Here's foods that are going to give you the best chance of having health. Here's what, here's how healthy food is grown. Here's how healthy food is prepared. And here's how healthy food can taste good. And here's the foods you don't want to have so much of, but you know, have them once in a while as a treat. And here's a healthy attitude towards food. That's what I want to give people because when I can help people have a healthier relationship with food, that's when their eating challenges or their weight challenges, that's when things start to shift finally for the first time for many people in their entire life yeah it's kind of it's kind of funny how we've created an industry that creates food that's 
as addicting as possible. And then they tell us to not eat it if we want to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, it's like two. Yeah. It's like we're fighting the uh, losing battle at that point. Yes. And yeah. it's a very confusing message. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up because then what happens is then you're told if you're battling weight, you're told what? It's your fault. It's mm. your fault that you're gaining this weight. It's your fault that you can't control your appetite. You need more willpower. What's wrong with you? You're a willpower weakling. And then we have all this guilt and we have all this shame and we think I have a problem. Meanwhile, food scientists who are really smart, I've met them. These are some smart characters. They have learned over the decades how to engineer foods that hook you, that essentially addict you to them so that you want to eat those potato chips, you want to eat those cookies, you want, you want to eat it, and you don't want to stop and you want to keep buying it. Mm -hmm. And, but then it's your fault. So that's a conflicting message. And, you know, that's why I think it's important for people to realize, like, wait a second, this is not your fault. You're learning how to be a human being who eats on planet Earth, which doesn't support you in being the healthiest eater. I wish it did but it hasn't really given you the best messages and you weren't raised in that way. Yeah. And uh, hopefully people have enough awareness um, to investigate that and search out the truth and find people like yourself that are, uh, have a different message and a message that I believe can help uh, a lot of people. Um, so this has been great, Mark. Thanks for coming on. I, I want to say before we leave though, um, is there any story or, you know, your book is fantastic. You're a very good writer, uh, very poetic. Um, but do you have any stories that kind of emphasize what we're trying to get across here as far as um, maybe somebody that was counting every single calorie and then they start implement one of your metabolic powers and then they finally see uh, results just kind of hit it home with people like kind of what we're talking about? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of a woman I've worked with and who came to see me. She wanted to lose weight and she self-diagnosed. Her problem was I'm addicted to chocolate mm -hmm. and I can't stop eating chocolate. And you know, she, she had a bunch of chocolate during the day, not as much as I was imagining she was going to say, but she was eating a lot of chocolate. And so, but, but here's her diagnosis. I eat too much chocolate. I'm hooked on chocolate. I'm hooked on sugar. And that's my problem. And I've tried to get off sugar and I'll push sugar away. I can do it for like three, four five days. Sometimes I could do it for a week, but then boom, it comes right back. And so she's focused on controlling her willpower around sugar. How can I have more willpower? How can I do this? And what I want to do when I'm with a client is I want to get to know them. I want to find out about their life. And as I learned about this woman, she's in her very early 50s, and she's living the kind of life where she feels very isolated. Uh, her family lives very far away. She, you know, 12 years ago, moved to a place where she didn't have any friends. She works at a job that she really doesn't like. And even though there's other people in her workspace, she's kind of like a solo person in her work environment. So she doesn't have a lot of contact. Well, what do you like to do for fun? She really doesn't have anything she does for fun. She comes home, she sits in front of the TV and she eats chocolate. Are you interested in, are you in a relationship? No. Well, why not? Do you want to be? Yes. Well, I can't be because 
I need to lose 20 pounds. Who would want to be in relationship with me because I'm too fat? I need to lose 20 pounds, but I can't lose 20 pounds because I eat too much chocolate. So I can't have love in my life until I lose this weight. And so the work I did with her was looking at her life. She's isolated. She has no aspirations. She doesn't have connection in her life. And when I asked her, hey, how long do you want to live? How, how many years? And she said, I don't know, maybe till 90. I said, great. So that's about 40 more years. Who do you want to be in those 40 years? What's going to make life worth living? Do you want to keep living the same life? Is that going to be fun? No. Well, who do you want to be? And, and you know, I don't think anybody's ever asked her that question. So as it turns out, I said to her, I can't help you to not eat chocolate because chocolate's the best thing you have going in your life. It's your only pleasure. I said, you are hooked on chocolate because chocolate is pleasurable. It's a great experience. You eat it. And for the first time in your day, you feel good. So I, I am not going to take away chocolate from you. You, you can't. It's impossible. You've tried it. There's no trick I have in the book to take it away from you. However, you need to make your life as interesting as chocolate. You need to have other parts of your life that are equal to chocolate. Otherwise, you're going to keep going back to chocolate. So you need to start having connection. You need to start having friends. You need to start dating, travel. So we started looking at like all her dreams that she had kind of pushed to the side and her interests and some of her passions. She has a passion for dance. She has a passion for music that she had put to the side. She has friends and family that she's been wanting to visit, but she gets kind of lazy about it. And as I was able to help her become the person that she was meant to be, she started feeling better about herself. Because I was coaching her like to be the best version of you. Started feeling better about herself. And without having to do anything, she started eating less chocolate. Without having to do anything, she started improving her diet because now she had a reason to live. She was feeling good about herself. She had a reason to eat healthy food because she wanted to do more healthy things for herself because healthy habits tend to just kind of multiply once you start to feel better about yourself. And she was able to lose some weight and get off of a chocolate addiction, not because of some secret technique about how to stop desiring chocolate, and she still ate chocolate, but look at the rest of your life and look at the brilliant reason why you're eating chocolate. So really that, that was, you know, the metabolic power of, of purpose, of meaning, of spirituality, of the sacred, you know, because there's the part of us that we need to have a reason to live that's good enough such that, oh, I want to live this life. And if I want to really live my life, then I have to have a reason or reasons that make me want to get up in the morning that inspire me. Because if you're inspired about your life, you're going to be inspired to move your body. You're going to be inspired more to move your body, inspired more to do healthy things. So I don't know if that hit the target for you, but that's what came to mind. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's exactly, uh, that's just, that's just one example. And there's so many other examples like that in the book. And, uh, you know, I've just seen and heard other places, but oftentimes it's, it's not, it's it, almost every time it's not willpower. 
because a lot of these people that are trying to lose weight and they're actually attempting, they have a lot of willpower. Mm -hmm. um, it's just something else that's missing, like this pleasure, like this sacredness um, of connection and, and community and things like that. And so, yeah, I would definitely urge people to, if they're having a problem with weight loss, uh, look into asking some better questions around that. Uh, why is it that you want chocolate? What is it about the chocolate? You know, uh, what what's missing in my life? Things like that that can really uh, illuminate a lot of information or answers to to your to your problems. And and the funny thing about that is a lot of people know the answer if they're asked the right question. They know why they're binging on chocolate or they can't lose weight. Um, and it's usually not just because there's too many calories in the chocolate. It's because of something bigger, but sometimes that, that bigger thing can be, um, a scary thing to face. And so it's easier to blame the chocolate or blame your willpower than actually take a look at some of these things that need looking at. So, so well stated. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Mark. So if, um, if the people want to find out more about you, uh, wh where would the listeners go? Go to psychologyofeating.com. That's our website. You can learn about the programs we offer. We have a training for aspiring health coaches, mind body eating coach certification training. You can learn to work with weight and body image, overeating, binge eating, emotional eating, people who endlessly diet, food worry, um, as well as you know various health concerns. And we have um, a couple of great programs for the for the general public. We have a new one coming out in 2023 it's called the emotional eating breakthrough so if you get on our mailing list you'll hear about that program when it comes out I'm, I'm super excited about that and yeah and you can go to facebook and look us up there institute for the psychology of eating we publish a lot of great free content there thanks for asking sean all right well thank you for uh, coming on once again you're like i said you're one of my top five people that i wanted to have on the podcast so i really appreciate taking your time to uh uh, make it to the podcast today and um i hope you have a good one i'm honored sean thanks for the invite thanks for the great conversation all right thank you i hope you enjoyed that episode with mark mark's philosophy around nutrition addresses many of the ideas that the conventional weight loss industry does not the reasons why people struggle to lose weight while following the traditional exercise more eat less diet plans these reasons are what i call the calorie conundrum and they are why i created this podcast Hopefully you can see why I wanted to have Mark on the show to share his wealth of wisdom. If you are struggling to lose weight, what questions could you ask yourself to dig deeper into understanding your relationship with food and self? What metabolic powers have you been neglecting? Have you been using diet and exercise as a distraction from the real issues that are affecting your weight and life? These are just a few things to think about. Hopefully this episode has given you some ideas to ponder. And with that said, this is Coach Strick saying thanks for listening and remember when calories in calories out doesn't work that my friend is a calorie conundrum
This podcast, including Coach Strick and guests, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects for the use of any information contained herein. Coach Strick and or guests may recommend products or services in which they have a direct or indirect financial interest. To find out more, please visit www.calorieconundrum.com.